Father, the incredible reality that brings us together is what we just sang about, that you are holy. You are worthy of, of all the praise of every single one of us, of all creation. Father, we want to be people who worship you every minute of our lives. We want to be people whose, whose whole life is, is lived in praise of you for your holiness and your glory and your character and what you've done for us. I pray that you would stir our hearts by the words of your Holy Scripture to make us more faithful and more consistent worshipers of you, the all-worthy God. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, and asking that you'd send your Holy Spirit to work powerfully among us this morning. Amen. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are a brand new Christian. You don't have any Christian background. You never went to church growing up. But, but somewhere along the line, someone has explained the gospel message to you that, that God has sent his son Jesus to rescue sinners. And so you are a brand new Christian. But you've got a question now. What do you do now? I mean, you don't know what a Christian is supposed to look like. What does a Christian do? What are the attitudes and the mindset and the actions that, that mark the Christian life? You don't have something to kind of fall back on, something to remember from your, your family history. This is brand new to you. So, so what does a Christian life look like? So for some of you, this is easy uh, to imagine because that is your story. You didn't grow up in the church, but, but you did come to put your faith in Jesus. And then you had to discover what it means to live as a Christian. But for others of us, it's, it's hard to imagine this because we grew up in a Christian home. We grew up going to church, and so we kind of had the, the cultural Christianity was built into our childhood. So it's hard for us to imagine being a, a new Christian. But as much as that's a huge blessing, having grown up in the church, it can also kind of shadow and cloud our perception of what the Christian life is because we can tie it to sort of cultural baggage connected to the church rather than having it actually be tied to the gospel specifically. So for those who don't have any church background and for those who were born to the church and grew up in the church, we have to discover the exact same thing. And that's, what does it mean to live as a Christian? What does a Christian look like? That's the question that we're going to look at this morning, that, that Peter is going to answer uh, for us in the passage of Scripture before us this morning. And we've got to remember that, that Peter is writing this letter that we've been looking at to first century Christians. In other words, this is the very first generation of Christians. They didn't have a church background. They didn't have a Christian background. And Peter's going to lay a foundation for them of what the Christian life looks like. So today he's going to give a, the big, broad picture commands for what the Christian life is going to look like. And then in the coming weeks, he's going to build more specificity into that as he gets into the issues that we deal with in our lives. So the passage that we have before us today is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already done that. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1,200. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. As we look at this text this morning, we're going to look at it in two parts. First, Peter is going to give us a charge uh, to the believers, and then he's going to give the foundation for that charge. So we're going to look at it in these two parts. So first, we're going to look at the, the charge that Peter uh, gives to uh, believers here. Now, 
Peter has already laid out the, the foundation of the gospel in his introductory material from verses 1 through 12 of this opening chapter. He's kind of laid out the basic gospel message for us, and now he's going to get down to telling us what we're supposed to do. So he's going to give us three commands here in this opening charge. The first command is found in verse 13. Look at that with me. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Now, we've already seen that Peter uses lots of complex sentences, but the basic command he's giving here is to hope in the grace that is going to be revealed in Jesus Christ. In other words, believe the gospel message. And he gives these these two uh, accompanying phrases for the mode in which we are to go about that. We are to be alert. We're kind of to get our minds ready for action. And then we are to be fully sober in this pursuit of believing and hoping in the gospel. Now, Peter doesn't want us to get away with thinking that believing the gospel is a casual thing. So we live in a time and in a cultural context where a lot of people have prayed a prayer of faith in Jesus. They have ostensibly said that I believe the gospel. But if you look at their life and how they live, it looks like there's no substance to that. The evidence of their life shows that that professed faith, that prayer, didn't have any backing to it. There was no substance, no root to that. It held no weight for them. But Peter's telling us that this is actually a really weighty thing. This is the kind of thing that if you're going to do, if you're really going to believe the gospel, you've got to set your mind for that action of believing. You've got to be fully sober, be be clear-minded as you make this decision to believe the gospel. So we are commanded here to make a clear resolution to put all of our hope fully in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's calling us to belief that involves decisive action here. We're saying that all of our hope, all of our confidence now rests in the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. So whatever it was that used to mark our confidence and our hope, whatever our culture or our family told us to hope in, whether that's money or influence or education or friends, any of those things are no longer what we have hope in. All of our hope, all of our confidence rests in the grace to be revealed in Jesus Christ. We believe the gospel. So that's the the first command that Peter gives us here. To be a Christian, to live as a Christian, means that you decisively put all of your hope in Jesus Christ, to hope fully in him. That's the first command. The second one's in verses 14 to 16. Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. So the second command here is to be holy. And that demands that there's a change from how things used to be. So Christians aren't supposed to follow the the old pattern of life that they had, the lifestyle that they had before they came to Christ. This demands a fundamental change. And Peter might not be exactly politically correct in his language here, but he's saying your former way of life was lived in ignorance. And because you lived in ignorance, you followed desires that were contrary to God's will. You followed evil desires because you lived in ignorance. And now that you've come to Christ, he's saying, you are to be holy. That's his command here. Be holy. Why? Well, because God is holy. Now that suddenly raises the bar of what's being said here. 
If holiness is measured by God, that's a big deal. I mean, the standard morality of our day is just don't be a jerk. That's kind of the standard ethics, right? If you're generally kind to people, if you generally try not to hurt other people, if you do your best, most people are going to give you a pass, right? They're going to say, well, that person's a generally nice person. They're okay. But Peter's commanding Christians to be holy in every aspect of their lives with holiness being defined by God himself. That means holiness is absolute holiness. It's perfection. That's a huge, huge statement. It's all the more daunting if you look at the command that follows it. So the third command then in verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So the third command is to live in reverent fear. Why? Because God is a judge who judges each person's work impartially. God judges each person by what they do. So we are to live as obedient children, Peter tells us, not following the old desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but instead being holy in everything because God is holy and he will judge everyone by what they do. Now, that's a potentially terrifying statement, right? If, if our holiness is measured by God, if that's the standard of holiness, and if God judges each person impartially by what they do, that can be a really terrifying thing because you and I know that we're not holy people. But there's actually a, a little bit here that, that changes that from being a message of pure terror. So yes, God is perfect. He is absolutely perfect. And he judges everyone by their work. But at the same time, the judge, the impartial judge, has invited us to call him Father. So the holy God who judges us has made us his children. So it's not a life of terror, but a life of reverent fear because we respect God rightly for who he is, for his holiness, and that he is judge. So Peter's giving us three commands here for what it means to live the Christian life. We're to hope in the gospel, hope in the grace to be revealed in Jesus Christ. We are to uh, be holy as God is holy, and we are to live our lives as in reverent fear. Those three commands really are what it means to live as a Christian. So this, we, we can kind of lump these together as one kind of umbrella charge that Peter gives to his readers, which is to reorient your whole life by the gospel. You, you orient your life by the gospel by doing these things, by, by hoping in the gospel, by being holy, and by living in reverent fear. And as it turns out, if you end up actually living like that, if your life is really reoriented by the gospel, you're going to look different from the people that are around you. It's kind of an odd way of life because it demands a radical change from what used to be true of you. It's a radical change from your former way of life. And that means that more often than not, you're going to look like a foreigner when you're walking around in your own hometown. I, this came clear to me when I overheard a conversation uh, several years ago uh, when I first moved here. I, someone was talking about uh, a mutual friend uh, of theirs. A couple of people were talking about a mutual friend of theirs who had, who had passed away unexpectedly the week before. And they were really surprised because he was not an old man. It seemed like he had, he had passed away much too young, much too early. And I was sitting there uh, reflecting on this and thinking this is such a, a great opportunity for the gospel. It's a chance for, you know, someone is talking about uh, premature death, they're talking about the, the fragility of life, and this is an opportunity for the gospel hope to come into this conversation. And right when I thought that, one of the guys said, you know what, you never know when you're going to die. And the next guy said, yeah, so you should go buy that new truck that you've been thinking about getting. 
because you never know when you're going to die, and you better do it now before it's too late. I thought, what? I mean, really, you're, you're confronted by the possibility of death at any moment, and that moves you to resolve to go buy something now so that you don't mess up or you don't miss out on it because you die too soon. I think, what an empty picture of life because it means that there's nothing to look forward to. You've got, you've got no substance. You've got no hope there except what's right in front of your face, the, the here and now, whatever you can kind of squeeze out of this life today. It's just an empty pursuit of stuff. But you know what? That shouldn't surprise us because that is what our culture teaches us to value. Our culture teaches us that happiness is found in stuff. That hope is found in an economic outlook. That security is found in physical strength or plenty of ammunition. That the value of a life is marked by utility and purpose. But that is empty. There's nothing of substance there. I don't know about you, but I've spent most of my life trying to fit in and trying to to be accepted by others. I don't want to look different because then they might think I'm weird and then they might not like me. And I want to be liked by people. And so I don't want to be different. But the truth is that because of the gospel, I am different. I have a different set of values because God has changed my values. He has changed my lifestyle because of that. And my my happiness isn't tied to stuff that I acquire. My happiness is tied to the fact that God is my father and, and he has called me his child. My hope isn't tied to an economic outlook. My hope is tied to God's salvation. My security isn't tied to, to muscles or guns. It's tied to the fact that, that God is my protector. The value of my life and the life of others isn't, isn't tied by utility or what they can do. It's tied to the fact that they're made in the image of God. See, being a Christian means that you are different, and that's why Peter gives this charge to orient your whole life by the gospel. It's a radical reorientation of all of your values, all of your lifestyle, to something totally different now. You see through different eyes. Your your life is totally transformed by the gospel. So Peter's charge here to this first generation of Christians who are wondering, well, now what? I I love Jesus, but, but now what? This is his answer. You orient your whole life by that message of Jesus. You put all of your hope decisively, action-oriented in Jesus, in the gospel. You live a holy life. You live in reverent fear. Now that's a really big charge, isn't it? That's demanding everything of us. That can be a really daunting kind of a task. But if we're ever going to do that big charge that Peter gives us, we have to understand the foundation that he gives us next. And so we turn from, from the charge to the foundation then. Look with me at verses 18 through 21. This is what Peter says here. After giving this charge to radically reorient your life according to the gospel, this is what he says. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. What Peter's doing in these verses is really laying out the gospel message. 
That's the foundation for all the charges he has given. It is the gospel. So let's walk through this for a second here. The starting point that, that Peter describes for every one of us, he describes as the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That's, how he, uh, what, that's what he says in verse 18. Now, we've got to remember that, that Peter is talking with the first generation of Christians. So they don't have a church background. They don't have a Christian background. They didn't go to church growing up. They don't understand what the Christian life is. So they came from an empty way of life. And this is actually a pretty uh, radical thing for him to say because in that context, the, the way of life handed down from your ancestors was thought to be kind of the uh, basis for a stable society. So by saying you, your way of life handed down from your ancestors is empty, is useless, he's actually going in the face of what everyone thought made for a stable society. So he's dealing with these first century Christians, first generation of Christians. They don't have a Christian background to look back on. And he's saying your way of life that your fathers and mothers and grandparents handed down to you, it's empty. It's worthless. But that's true even for those of us who grew up in Christian homes. Here's what I mean by that. I do think it's a great thing to have a Christian heritage, but our parents and grandparents might be very godly people, and they might have taught us to live a very godly life. But until we accept Christ for ourselves, it's just tradition and just rules. Even the best Christian practices and even the, the, the best morality are just a shell if we don't have a real relationship with God through Jesus. That's what I mean by that. So that means that the starting point for every single one of us is that we had an empty life. Our life before we came to Christ is an empty way of life. Now, that starting point is seen for all its danger if we consider what Peter has already told us. So in verses 15 and 16, he said, God is holy. Not on a sliding scale, but God is holy. Absolute perfection. And he said in verse 17 that God judges each person impartially according to what they do. So a holy God who judges everyone impartially. And then Peter said that we are born into an empty way of life. We lived in ignorance. We followed desires that were contrary to God's will. Verse 14, verse 18. So if that's true, then we're in trouble. I mean, you can kind of put the pieces together yourself. If, if God is holy and he is the impartial judge, and if I am born into an empty way of life, if I live in ignorance and therefore follow desires that are contrary to God's will, then that's a really bad thing. It means that we will be judged by a holy God and we will stand condemned. But that's where the good news comes in. Because Peter reminds us that, that the holy God who judges each person impartially has redeemed you and me. And that's what it, he's saying here in verse 18. You were redeemed from that empty way of life. The language of redemption is an image of, of being freed from slavery. So in the ancient world, you could be redeemed. A slave could be redeemed for a certain amount of money. Now, slavery here is not physical slavery like that. Slavery here is the empty way of life, what you were born into. It's living in ignorance. You are a slave to an empty way of life. But we are freed from that. We are redeemed by a price that's paid by God himself. And the price is not a monetary price. Peter reminds us that gold and silver, they're very valuable to us. And in the ancient world, gold and silver would have been what was used to free a slave from slavery, to redeem a slave. But he reminds us that, that gold and silver, they're just stuff like everything else. They're going to perish along with everything. But the price that God paid to set you free is much more precious, much more valuable than gold and silver. 
the price that he paid to redeem you, to set you free from your empty way of life, is the costly, honorable blood of Jesus Christ himself. And really, that is the only way that you and I could be set free. That is the only way that we can be redeemed. A slave can get, be set free if you pay enough money. But what can you pay if your life is what is owed? There's no amount of money that can redeem a life because the payment for that is death. A life is required for that. But God was so determined to redeem you and to redeem me that he sent his son to die in your place, to die for you. He paid for your life. He redeemed your life at the cost of his own son, death. Now, if that seems unfair to Jesus, remember that it doesn't end at the cross. Verse 21, Peter reminds us that God raised Jesus from the dead. Death can't hold Jesus in the grave. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave in defeat of death. He was raised to life. The resurrection means that the death doesn't have its sting. It doesn't have the finality that it once had for us. It's not the end anymore. Jesus has defeated sin and death. Sin and death, that means that the empty way of life that you had, those aren't what hangs over you. They are not the power over you anymore. You have been redeemed from that empty way of life that was marked by sin and death and slavery, and now you have been set free in Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome sin and death. I mean, that's the overwhelming message of the gospel. It's that God has sent his son to redeem you from empty life to true life. It's good news. Now, here's the point of all that for Peter's argument. The radical reorientation that he, he charges believers with in the first section is accomplished not by you trying harder. It's accomplished by the gospel in you. This charge is the result of the gospel at work in your heart. So when Peter, when Paul, when the other writers of the Bible give us a command, it's always tied to a promise of God. So the, the indicative, what is true of you, always precedes the imperative, do this. So they always tell us, this is what's true of you because of God's work in your life, and now as a result of that, live this way. Here, it's because God has redeemed us from the empty life that we are able to reorient our lives by the gospel. So to live a gospel life comes from the work of God in your heart. I mean, think about the commands he's given us. Put all of your hope in Christ. Decisively set your mind to hope in Christ. Be holy like God is holy. Live in reverent fear. Those are impossible commands, really, if we get the scope of them, apart from the gospel taking root in our lives. This is the point here. Transformed lives come from gospel transformation in our hearts. If we miss this point, we're going to miss the whole point of the passage, and really, we're going to miss the whole point of the book because everything builds off of this. And if we miss this point, we're going to think that Peter is telling us to do things that are impossible for us to do. So think about it this way. Let's say that you have a, a washing machine that you have to move. I don't know if you've moved washing machines before, but they are heavy. Dryers are a little bit lighter, but washing machines are really heavy. And you're sitting there, you, you've got to move it up a full flight of stairs and you're sitting there in your lazy boy thinking, I really don't want to do this. So you're, you're trying to think of different options. And then you remember, hey, I've got kids. And, and why have kids if you're not going to get some work out of them, right? I don't actually think that much as utility. So you're sitting there in your lazy boy and you call your five-year-old over to you and you say, I need you to move that washing machine up the stairs for me. So what's going to happen? 
If you have a very willing and obedient five-year-old, she's going to go over to the washing machine. She might try with all of her effort. Is she going to be able to move it? No, she's going to come back and say, I, I can't move it. So what do you do? You're getting angry now. You say, well, listen, I am sitting here, my lazy boy. I don't want to have to move that myself. So you're going to threaten punishment. If you don't move that washing machine, you're going to time out. Or you're going to get really serious. If you don't move that washing machine, I'm going to take away your favorite toy. And so now she's motivated. She really wants to do it. She goes back over there and she tries with all her effort. There's no way she's going to be able to move the washing machine. Her motivation might be stronger, but it's still an impossible task. The fact that you're, you're threatening her with punishment doesn't change the fact that it's impossible for her. Well, what if you try a different tactic? Okay, not, not punishment, not threatening, but, but bribery. So if you move that washing machine up those stairs, I will buy you any toy you want. I will give you $100 if you will move that washing machine up that flight of stairs. I mean, $100 to a fiber, that's a lot of money, right? So now she might be really, really motivated to move the washing machine. But does it change the fact that she's not able to do it? No, it's still an impossible task. You have given her an impossible task. No, no matter how uh, much authority you have, no matter how hard you push, no matter how much you threaten or how much you try to bribe, it's not going to change the fact that it's impossible for her to do that. What Peter is commanding us here and what he's going to command us as he gets into the book are impossible tasks except for the work of God in our hearts. There is no way that you can reorient your life by the gospel unless God has done a work in your heart. It's an impossible task otherwise. And so after giving these three commands, giving this big charge to reorient your life by the gospel, Peter reiterates the wonder of what he's already touched on in the opening verses. God has saved you. God has redeemed you. And that's why it's possible for you to do this, to obey these commands, to radically reorient your life by the gospel. So here's the point. Transformed lives come from the work of God in your heart. Transformed lives come from the gospel transformation. Change always comes from the work of God. So through Jesus, God takes hopeless people out of an empty way of life and sets them free to have true, abundant life in him. We see this time after time after time in the ministry of Jesus. So he goes to, to one uh, region of the country, and he comes across this man who's just totally crazy. He's possessed by a demon, and he's, he's so powerful that the chains can't keep him anymore. He's so wild and lost that he's living among the tombs. He's got no hope, no prospects, totally outcast from society. And Jesus walks up to him and totally changes his life. He commands the demon to get out of him, and he restores his sanity. He restores him to his right mind. The man gets clothed, and actually that man becomes a missionary to his whole region, saying, this is what Jesus did for me. He has redeemed me from my empty way of life and given me a true life back. Or in another instance, there's a woman drawing water from a well, and she's living a miserable, empty life. She's, been, she's had five husbands, and she's living with a sixth man who she's not even married to. So in that cultural context where divorce rates are almost exclusively on the man, she has been used and cast aside. She is totally vulnerable, totally lost. She has no prospects, no hope for the future. An empty life. And Jesus speaks to her and tells her plainly where life is found. He speaks right to her issue such that she gets up, she goes back to her town, 
outcast that she is, and she tells everyone, listen, you've got to come see this guy. She becomes a missionary saying, listen, this man told me everything I've ever done, and then they come and hear him too, and then they believe in Jesus because of her testimony and because of what they saw in Jesus. Jesus takes people from an empty way of life, people who are living a shell of an existence, redeems them from that, and gives them a whole life back, a true life. God redeems us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is what is offered to us in the gospel message. God sent his son Jesus to rescue sinners. So what are you going to do with this message? What it takes is for us to respond to the message of Jesus by putting all of our trust in him. Let me be very clear on this. This is not a message that says, try harder, improve yourself, be good, do good, do better. This is not that message. The only way to receive the gospel is to receive it as a gift, to accept what God has done on our behalf. Everything needed, he did for us. And the only way we can accept it is to accept it as a gift. God's free grace, not based on anything we have done, but his gift through his son, Jesus Christ. He has redeemed us. It's because real change doesn't come from us trying harder. Real change comes from us believing the gospel more. It comes from God's work in our hearts. So our charge isn't to try harder, it's to believe the gospel message. If you accept this gift, it will change your life forever. And Peter's saying right here, you believe the gospel. And then as a result of that, God works in your heart. And then you are able to radically reorient your life according to this good news. Because God has already redeemed you. And so you live now in light of that. So when you look at your own life, when you look at the the brokenness and the pain, whatever it is that is causing you to live something of a shell of a human existence rather than a full, vibrant life, this is the solution. Typically, the way we deal with these things is to to work on the surface level, to treat the symptoms. And so we put lots of Band-Aids on. Our culture has a lot of different Band-Aids for different pains that we feel and different uh, problems that we're experiencing. But Peter is getting right to the heart of the issue. You had an empty life, and God redeems you through the blood of his Son. And that means that you can now have life. God has done everything for you. So you're called to believe it, and then you're called to live it. And if we're ever going to do this, if this is ever going to happen, God must be the one who works. And so because of that, let's close in prayer, asking that he would do this incredible work in our hearts. God, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak the gospel message into our hearts. I thank you for this great hope that we have in Christ, that you did redeem sinners, that you have rescued us, that that we don't have to be stuck in the shell of a life, in emptiness, in nothingness, but that you have called us to a new, true life. Father, for those who have accepted the message of Jesus, who have received your grace in Jesus Christ, I pray that again they would be reminded of how powerful of a story this is, how how vital to life it is, that you would shape our lives by this message. And for those who have not yet found this life in Jesus, I pray that you'd use your spirit to work in their hearts and work in their minds so that they too may discover true life, not an empty shell of existence, but true life in you through your son. 
It's in his name we pray.